You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Hi, Spot On listeners. I told you I'd be back and talking about everything sustainability and really what is a sustainable diet and food system. So I brought on somebody that is the expert in this field. This is Dr. Ty Beal. He's a research advisor at GAIN. Hmm. So you say, what is GAIN? Well, GAIN stands for Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. Is that clever or what? And he, he does, he, this, he lives and breathes this. And his research seeks to understand global dietary patterns and how they relate to malnutrition. But really, more importantly, you know, how he can improve food systems that are good for human health and then at the same time for the environment because that's really what we're going to get in today, Mother Earth, and, you know, what kind of a diet and a food system is really, really sustainable. First of all, Dr. Tai, thank you for coming and being with us here on Spot On. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, great. And I love I love talking to you. I have to, true confessions or true transparency. I met this lovely man at, at a conference and he got up and spoke and I just sat there like an awe, you know, and, and I said, I actually came up to him, you know, you probably don't even remember this. I actually came up to him afterwards and said, I'm having you on my podcast and you, yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, Bill, you'll never call. And look what I did, I called. Anyway, Dr. Ty, what I'm seeing so much about is, and, and there's a new survey that came out for the, from the International Food Information Council that, you know, when it comes to food choices, Listen, we all know number one is taste. I mean, let's, hello, taste. And, you know, price is important, convenience, healthfulness. But what keeps showing up is important to the consumer is sustainability. And and that keeps on, I've been watching this. Sustainability seems to be a big thing. So people are concerned about it. I'm not so sure they totally understand what a sustainable diet is, and that's why I'm having you here. But can, can you, you know, I think this is good that we have a discussion about this and figure out maybe some of the myths from the facts. So first of all, what is a sustainable food system? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, sustainable diets are those with um, low environmental impacts that contribute to food and nutrition security and to healthy life for present and future generations. You know, that's from an FAO definition about 10 years ago. And it actually goes on to say they're protective and respectful of biodiversity and ecosystems. They're culturally acceptable. Uh, You can access um, nutritious foods, economically fair and affordable, nutritionally adequate, safe and healthy while optimizing natural and human resources. So it's very broad. It includes all aspects of planetary health. You know what I love about it? Because I actually read that statement too. That is a mouthful. Um, it, it brought in not just like food and, and, and Mother Earth. It was like, wait a minute, affordability, cultural. You know, you know, some people grew up culturally eating certain kinds of foods. Uh, so it, it, it's a very complex um, system rather than saying, you know, um, you know, what's your carbon footprint? You know, when they say that, when, when you're talking about food. So l- let's talk about that. So when people say, well, what's the carbon footprint of the food? What are they talking about? 
Yeah. So in general, they're talking about, you know, what are the greenhouse gas emissions uh, that it takes to produce that food? And that those emissions um, can be anything from CO2 to methane to nitrous oxide. And these, uh, these emissions are usually quantified through a life cycle assessment. So they try to look, you know, as, as broadly as you can, at, you know, from the, the time the food is uh, produced on farm, the, the transportation, packaging, all of that, you know, uh, when, when done properly, you can try to account for all of that um, entire process across the life cycle. Right, right. And, you know, for people that I know, uh, what greenhouse gases is just a little review with the way I like to say, the way I teach it here at Boston University, when I do a very small section in my nutrition class about that small, because I'm not an expert like you, but it, greenhouse gases are like this blanket now that are around the earth and, and we used to have a very thin blanket and now we have a heavy quilt that's around the earth and what it's doing is keeping the heat rather than expanding keep keeping it down and keeping the earth warm is that a good explanation dr ty am i how far off am i that's a perfect analogy it's right <laughs> the greenhouse gases trap heat in the atmosphere and they warm the planet I like the blanket analogy because that blanket has become much thicker over the last few decades, as you as you well know. Yeah, when you, we're talking about my grandmother's quilt. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you could you could you would have to put the heat on in the house if you had that quilt. It was so warm. So you know, um, so these greenhouse gases and and and. Uh, there's a lot of pointing of fingers and there's a lot of blaming that some foods, you know, are uh, emit more greenhouse gases um, than others. But can you just explain an overview? What is, um, you know, what role does agriculture play in creating these greenhouse gases? Sure. So that's a, that's a great question. And really, agriculture is one of many other sectors that contribute to greenhouse gases. So it's actually you think about globally, it's about the third largest um, emitter of anthropogenic, so human-caused greenhouse gases. The first one coming from the energy sector, so energy supply, um, and then industry. Uh, and then agriculture comes in around 22% of uh, emissions, and that's agriculture, forestry, and land use. That's globally. Okay, so that sounds like it sounds like it's number three. Exactly. Right? That, that The top one, right? Okay, and you know... Uh, uh, I, I, I always think about that, and I found that very, very interesting. I remember looking at a chart from the EPA, actually, the Environmental Protection Agency, that said that greenhouse gas emissions went down in 2020 as compared to 2019. And then they went on to say probably due to less traveling um, that was done, and you know, transportation and economic uh, movement, but less transportation because they said about thirteen percent of it was clearly about transportation. You know, we hunkered down; the car stayed in the garage, right? And isn't that interesting? And greenhouse gas emissions go down. So I always like to start this in saying, mm, "That's interesting." So before we start saying that you know, it's all agriculture, is it all your car? And are you, you know, I live in the suburb, you know, you, you, we take the car to take the garbage out. In the city, you walk around, but you know, we do this for everything. And so, you know, with our, how many cars are in a family nowadays? You know, I mean, we used to have one one car, 18 people lived in a house, you had one car, and now everybody has a car. So, so I guess we want to kind of look at the whole picture here. It's, right now, we're going to talk about food systems and sustainability, but I want people to remember that, that, you know, 
every time you get in the car when you can walk rather than drive you uh, it's good for mother earth yeah and you know just to, just to elaborate on that in the u.s it's actually even a smaller share agriculture of total emissions because energy and, and uh, industry transportation it all takes up uh, a larger share so it's about 11 percent um, agriculture of total emissions so that's not to say it's not important but we have all sorts of causes um, of you know greenhouse gas emissions that you know if we want to try to address climate change we need to look at everything we need to not just lame cows for example right let's talk about okay we know the car and greenhouse emissions let's talk about agriculture because this is what it's all about so what's the story with greenhouse emissions you know we always say we have to have a plant-based diet because that's better for greenhouse emissions than you know making animal foods so growing plant-based foods versus growing animal foods that plant-based foods have lower greenhouse gas emissions. So can you explain this all to me, please? Is that true? Yeah. So I think if you, from an overly simplistic view, it is true that animal source foods tend to generate uh, more greenhouse gas emissions, you know, per similar quantity of a plant-based food. They use more land, uh, but it's a bit uh, reductionistic. And I think it's important to, to realize that in an ecosystem where food is produced, so an agroecosystem, the emissions are one factor of that, but how is the uh, how is the overall environmental impact uh, affected by the food that's produced? If you have a plant, you know you have a crop monoculture, you may have relatively low direct emissions, but you're also using fossil fuel fertilizer inputs. You're potentially using pesticides, a lot of inputs into the land, which can potentially go into runoff and create eutrophication. The soil health is not necessarily great. The biodiversity is impacted. So all of these factors, I think, are important. And really, when you think about the difference between animal and, and plant source foods, it's not so significant overall if you're thinking about producing foods in more sustainable ways holistically. Circular ecosystems. Um, how do you make use of waste? Uh, how do you re recycle some of these crop residues that are not edible to humans. Well, and, you know, ruminants can do that pretty efficiently. So I think there's a sort of a false uh, oversimplification to say, you know, plant source foods are good for the environment, animal source foods are bad. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Okay, so let me just say, so you're saying that, that, that typically without their overall, in general, plant-based foods have less gas greenhouse gas emissions than, say, animal food, foods when you make animal foods. It, but there's all these other things that go into it. And, you know, um, I was reading an interesting paper on this, and, and there's some some issues with, you know, diet quality. So, you know, plant, I love, I, first of all, I'm 110% Italian, so I eat anything that's not moving. So I, I love plant foods. I like animal foods. And and when it comes to animal foods, what is the problem with the greenhouse emissions? What, what keeps on being talked about? Yeah, so in general, I think ruminants get uh, a bad rap. That's because, so these are things like, you know, cows or goats or lamb. Now, they belch methane, and that's, I think, a reality. You know, methane is a potent greenhouse gas. Um and the I think the the nuance there is that any type of natural ecosystem, say it's a it's a grassland, which actually cover a large share of the earth, anytime you have a wild ruminant wild ruminants in that land, which is really you know essential for the proper ecosystem function, they're going to be generating their own methane. It's a part of a natural cycle. Uh, it's not that it doesn't have an impact. It does. It do, it goes out of the atmosphere. But it cycles through and it gets um, converted. Um, and so there's a natural process that sort of takes that methane out of the atmosphere. So it's 
when you're producing livestock, you, you really have to think about what is the change in the emissions? You know, how much are you increasing emissions from adding livestock from a baseline? But what that baseline is, is really important to try to understand because let's say uh, you want to remove livestock from the land because it's, let's say you want to reduce methane emissions. Well, what's, what is going to happen to that land? Is that going to be naturally preserved? For one thing, that's, there's uh, not all the land that's out there being used for livestock is going to be used for other purposes um, other than maybe building on that or development. Most of the land, actually, the large majority is not even suitable for crop production. So you can't produce crops on that land. So if you were to, to put that land back into a sort of uh, a natural ecosystem of sorts, you're going to have uh, natural ruminants, deer, whatnot, that are going to live on that land. You're going to have predators on that land to control that. But that, that baseline process is still going to potentially produce emissions. And you have to think about what are the uh, additional emissions that are produced from having domesticated livestock beyond sort of wild ruminants. Right. That's, that's very, very interesting. So what, because I don't think pe people, uh, really, a lot of people understand that they say, oh, land's land, you can grow it or you can, or you can graze animals on it. But you're saying to me that the, uh, the land that animals like to graze on, you can't, it's not good for growing corn or tomatoes or whatever. Is that, what, is that right? Yeah. So out of the land that is currently used to, to graze livestock, about so this is about two billion hectares currently under production uh a majority of that about 1.3 billion are not suitable for crop production so there is there is you know 0.7 billion so 700 million hectares that could potentially be used for crops the majority is not and that's because it's it's on too steep of a terrain the soil's not you know uh, nutritious enough there's there's a lot of rocks in the terrain. It's not really um, able to be cultivated. There's a lot of different reasons for that, but that land in general is not really competing for crop production. Okay, interesting, interesting. So in other words, it's there, and you, you might as well use it for something that's edible. And if you stop doing like pigs or cows or whatever, that you're just saying wild animals that you're not going to eat, just going to take it over. So, so actually, what it sounds like the land that can't be raised crops on or plant based is you're making animal foods, and we know that animal foods are very rich in nutrients as well as plant foods, right? And there are some nutrients that are in animal foods that you are hard to come by uh, in plant foods. And wh what are some of those nutrients? Yeah, so. Some of the key nutrients that are hard to come by, for sure, vitamin B12. Um, plant sources don't really contain B12, so you need to have a, a supplement if you're not, you know, a fortif fortified B12 if you're not consuming animal source foods. Um, iron and zinc are actually prevalent in animal in plant foods. So, you know, beans, lentils can, can contain iron and zinc, but it's not as bioavailable. We often see deficiencies in populations with a uh, low level of animal source foods. Other, other nutrients like vitamin D, choline, even calcium can be limited um, in plant source foods. Right. Okay. So animal foods do provide something. And, and of course, you know, we plant-based foods are terrific. I mean, they bring a lot of fiber that's not in animal foods. So yet, you know, you want more plant-based foods in your diet, more fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And we know that they're rich in, um, in vitamins and minerals, 
uh, also. But it, it sounds like animal foods also can provide something of good nutrition to, to the diet. So you, you said that the plant foods have their problems. I mean, uh, you know, you, your runoff, you said, or pesticides. Did you say pesticides? Yeah, pesticides and uh, fertilizers, different um, chemicals that can be can kill the biodiversity in the soil, leach into water supplies. Right. And what about organic, though? Everybody says, okay, then buy plant foods that are organic. So what's the story on that? I think organic was a step in the right direction. It's just, it's not really a marker of necessarily of sustainability because you can have large industrial um, monocultures that are organic. Um, You can have less sustainable organic and more sustainable organic systems. I think it's really about can you use systems that are regenerating the land, that are helping to restore the soil health, that are using little few inputs, that are using few fossil fuels? There's a lot of factors. But organic, I think, is, you know, I sort of think of organic in a positive light. It's not the end-all be-all, and it doesn't automatically mean that it's sustainable, unfortunately. Right. And, you know, um, is there enough organic farms in, just say, I know you do global nutrition and food sustainability, but come, just come to the United States right now. So, so it, 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 is there really enough organic farms in the United States to feed even just people in the United States? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I would assume not. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that either, but, I, you know, because I don't really see a lot of, of organic foods, you know, or farms around me while well, I'm in New England, so they, they only come out in the summer out there. Um, so that always, I've, I've, I've looked at that and read that, that, you know, I'm not sure that there would be enough. And, and just because um, some, some plant foods are, you know, less gas house, greenhouse admissions, you got to look at their nutritional quality. And I read this great, great um, proceedings from a workshop that was done. Um, and it, they said, if you really want, this is great. I don't know if you've read this. If you really want a plant that is low greenhouse gas emissions and grows fabulous, grow sugar. And of course, the researcher was chuckling, saying, but really, when you think about it, if you're gonna if you're gonna look at plants or even any food and say, okay, which one has the less greenhouse emissions? Okay, sugar cane, yeah, sugar beets, okay. And so, but so so in other words, okay, but where's the nutrition? Because when we first started out with this, we said it was Mother Earth, it was good nutrition for everybody, affordability and culture and everything. And I thought that was really really funny. So I, you know, we we sort of have to look at the whole diet here and the whole. Um, uh, a variety of good foods that make up a healthy diet and make it affordable for everybody. Um, what's being done to make animal raising animal um, foods more sustainable? Because they seems to be that seems to be the one that's always being pinpointed as a greenhouse gas problem. So, so what's being done to make animal foods? be raised and produced in a more sustainable fashion. Sure. So in the U.S., you know, a lot of um, a lot of farmers and ranchers are working to produce regeneratively uh, raised animal source foods, so livestock. And they're producing the food really in alignment with the local ecosystem. So you're not trying to force production of a food. For example, you have a rainforest and you want to produce a bunch of grazing animals, that's not really the best suitable match, right? You don't want to have to clear a bunch of forests to do that. But if you have a natural grassland, you have natural grasslands, you know, 
ruminants can actually help maintain that grassland, that biodiversity, if they're raised in the appropriate way. So if they're managed to where they're not overgrazing and damaging the soil, but they're actually helping to uh, promote biodiversity, they're helping, they're, they're grazing in either, you know, compact herds and then being rotated in the, in the pro proper ways, or they're sort of extensively grazed so that they can help um, ensure there's enough regrowth from um, after grazing. And really, when you, when you look at the, the circular approaches, this is how can you do a diverse agroecosystem that has few inputs? So animal source foods provide great, great nutrients for crops. They also can make use of cross crop residues. You can make use of inedible food like uh, grasses and forbs and other um, shrubs. And if you put these into the same uh, ecosystem, agroecosystem, you can actually create a lot of uh, optimization of the, the food. So you're fertilizing the crops, the animals are eating the crop, remaining crops that can't be eaten by humans. And you can even provide food additives to help reduce the methane emissions. You know, there's, there's studies showing certain seaweeds can reduce emissions pretty substantially. And there's a lot of te technology you kind of merge this sort of what is uh, from the ecological perspective, how do you sort of sort of ensure this biodiversity on the farm and produce a lot of different foods that are nutritious, but then from a technical standpoint, how can you use technology to improve efficiency, you know, um, decrease diseases, and reduce the methane emissions. So I think it's really trying to think uh, smarter about how we produce the food and, and people are starting to do this. And it's, um, it's just a matter of time, hopefully, you know, before we really transition more of our unsustainable practices into this regenerative type of, type of model. Okay, now you got me thinking. So this is really interesting. So you're telling me that that animals like cows can eat like non edible plants, Foods. In other words, if you're drawing, if you're gonna, if you're gonna grow corn, just say right, and the corn stalks, other than on on Halloween, they look good in front of your house. But but the ones that don't go to Halloween stores, so the cows can eat that, and the cows can make obviously you know food from that. So that's sort of where the left hand is helps the right hand. In other words, the you can't eat it, so we might as well do something with it to make it into food. And so animals can eat that and convert it into nutritious food to feed people. Exactly. So it's a really, it's a really productive cycle. Animals eating the leftover remains that are inedible, if you do it in the right way. Their fertilizer helps give the nutrients into the soil. The plants need to grow and help actually increase the biodiversity. If you just have plants on the land, what natural ecosystem only contains plants? None, right? It's, it's always... If there's always a there's insects there's animals there's plants so if you want the if you want an agroecosystem to sort of ref, reflect to some extent a natural environment you got to have all of those different species on on the land and that's really how i like to think of it if you you know there's different words for this uh agroecology permaculture regenerative agriculture circular you know all these these buzzwords but ultimately it's trying to really model natural ecosystems to produce our food and i think that's in, in many contexts that's actually the most effective way to produce food in, in a sustainable way right so so all right now tell me about this because they always say the manure the manure is the problem okay so you got all this manure and uh, that these animals they poop in or in the fields or whatever and that's cause of problems so you can explain to us how does the manure you know contribute to this this 
greenhouse gas emissions? And is there, you know, what, what good can we do with this manure? Yeah, so it's just like with most of these things, it's really a double-edged sword. It can be good or it can be bad depending on how it's managed. So manure, you know, excess manure can lead to nutrient losses um, through these, these gaseous emissions, so leaching and runoff. Um, ultimately, when you, when you use it properly, if you can not have excess and if you can cycle it in the proper way, you can actually use that to just feed the plants themselves without having to um, create uh, runoff and leaching and, and whatnot. So that usually happens when you have, um, when you're producing animals in a, um, you know, confined areas when, when they're, you're in a feedlot and you have all this manure and you have these manure legumes, then if you're going to use it, you're going to have to transport it to a place where you have crops. And that takes emissions as well as, as well as resources and energy. So the, the circular system is more integrated. Let's say you, let's say you harvest the crop. Let's say it's a, it's a polyculture. You harvest the crop, you could actually graze ruminants on that land or you could have pigs come on that land. And as they're grazing, their manure is fertilizing that land, that ground. You don't have to move it there. You don't have to treat it. You don't have to ship it off. So if you can do it in the right way, and it's not, it's not always easy, but you can actually make use of the, let the animal do a lot of the work for you. Right, right, right. Can this be done? I mean, because this sounds like, you know, like a mom and pop farm where, you know, they're growing crops on one point and the animals on the other. Can this be done on a big scale? To have like, you know, we're all this full circle with the plants, growing plants on one part of the farm or, you know, and then it's the animals and we're all bringing all the good together. Is this possible or on a big scale? This is what we're probably... I think it's possible. I think it's, uh, at this point, it's a bit, uh, theoretical and it's really you know researchers are working on how to scale this yeah up. yeah we know that it's possible it's just that um how, how practical is it to do that um what are the what are the incentive how do the incentive structure incentive structures need to change for big farms to do that um i think you know there's a recent paper that looked at what could potentially how much protein from animal source foods or whatnot or i think it was protein overall could you produce from circular agroecosystems and it was something like 23 grams per person per day so it was making a meaningful contribution but there are going to be many challenges with how do you actually transition from a conventional system into this circular system but but there's a lot of interest in it too and i think donors are interested for for good reason it's just how do we how do we get this done at scale and how do we really make it um yeah it can be really profitable for farmers it's just it's going to take some, it's a, it's a big change. It's a different model. Right? right. Where's Bill Gates when we need him? Okay. And that's what we need. We need Bill to come on board and invest in all of this. But you know, that's, like I said, I eat it. I eat everything and I don't like to demonize anything and I don't want to give anything up on my plate. Uh, and but I want to be good to Mother Earth. So it's you know if we could just all come together and figure out a system, you know that could, uh, you know protect Mother Earth and still have the foods that we grew up loving. And I'm going to go back to let's not blame it just on agriculture. Let's blame it also on you and the car and what you're wasting in your home and electricity and things like that. So you know I think people have to think it's more than just agriculture and just pinpoint pinpointing foods but that would be really really interesting you know i guess i guess a way dr ty is you know if we just follow the dietary guidelines and make more of your plate 
plant forward fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and then a small portion, you know, protein sources with it should be. And that could be a variety from animal or it could be from beans or soy or whatever. Um, you know, you know, we don't have to have the half the plate to be a, a steak or, or half a chicken, you know. Uh, or don't eat the whole rotisserie chicken when you go and pick up a rotisserie chicken. So so I think that even if we just changed our portions, right? So, and, and you know, made sure that we were eating adequate amounts of all the kinds of foods, not overdoing one, that would probably help keep things into to check. Um, I got to ask you about, oh, I'm sorry, are you going to say something? No, I was just saying I agree with that. I think there's I think there is room for a moderate amount of animal source foods in a sustainable diet. I think the evidence actually shows that's that's a that's a a possible way forward and I think it doesn't have to be where there's extreme limits on specific food groups because you can produce soy in the wrong way. You can produce vegetables in ways that are unsustainable. You can produce animal source foods, right? So it's really more about the production method and ensuring sort of the right balance of foods in the diet. Right. And, you know, I always say, you know, hashtag hug a farmer. I don't care if, you, if you're growing corn or you're growing cows. Hug a farmer because thank goodness we have people that are really passionate about this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have food on our table. And, you know, I've, I've been to so many farms. I'm, I'm sure you've been to a gazillion Dr. type farms. But, you know, Produce farmers love their tomatoes. They love their corn. They love their string beans. And then animal farmers, they love their pigs. They're picking them up. They, lo they love their cows. It's like it's like a love fest. They just fell in love with growing whatever they were used to growing. But thank goodness that they do this. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to have, we wouldn't be able to have Thanksgiving dinner with all the abundance of Thanksgiving dinner if these people weren't out and, and doing this. I fully agree. They get, you know, sometimes farmers get a, a bad rap just because what they're, you're producing food and that has an impact. Of course, of course that has an impact, but like we need food, right? We all need food to survive. It's a part of our culture. It's, it brings people together. And it's pleasurable. It's pleasurable. And we, we do it because it tastes good. And I mean, don't we deserve something that tastes good after, you know, working all day? So, yeah. You know, we talked about, um, uh, you know, uh, the land and everything. You, what about, you know, speaking about this, I, this has got, have got to be one of the driest summers in New England. I have no grass. In fact, this is what I should do, Dr. Ty. I should get cows to come and eat my lawn. My lawn is brown right now. <laughs> it's like straw. So they could probably eat my lawn and probably, you know, be well fed. Uh, let's talk about water because it hasn't rained. So, you know, water is a big problem. So talk, talk a little bit about water usage when it comes to plants and animals. Like, I, you know, tell me about that. Yeah, so animals use a lot of water. Um, but I think the, the, the main point to re realize is that most of this water, about 94% of livestock water use is from rainwater. So that's called green water because it's, you know, if you're grazing cattle on a grassland and that water falls, you can say that the cattle are using that water. It, it, would be, it would fall whether or not you have cattle on the land, right? So it's already going to be there. Now, if you use irrigation called blue water, you're withdrawing from uh, aquifers or you're withdrawing from surface water. That's water that is much more precious to, to hold on to. So 
the majority, the large majority of water that livestock use is rainwater. Now that depends on which which uh, which area you're in. So over on the east coast, you have a lot lot more rain, and and there's large majority is just coming from rainwater. You don't have to supplement near, nearly as much. Uh, certain crops, there's a large range in, in water use for crops, but nuts use a lot of water. And most of them are grown in California where there's a drought right now and where there's water shortages. And so I think that's really, um, it's important to recognize we, you can't, if you're just going plant-based for the environment and you're going to shift to a bunch of nuts from California, that's not really the best option. So I think we need to, it doesn't mean nuts are bad. We can't, we can't produce nuts. It's just that on, on the scale, I think. Ultimately, if foods can be produced in ways that are within the the bounds of nature where they're produced, we're not overusing the water. We're not we're not over um, grazing. We're not over emitting. I think that we can have you can have moderate amounts of all of these foods on your plate. You know, I don't. It, you, you may have a food group like nuts, like you just said, that maybe use a lot of water. But it, look what it. But the outcome is it's a, it's a healthy food. I mean, it's a great food. It's nutrient dense. It's got fiber. It's got phytochemicals. I mean, or do you want to use the water to do uh, sugar beets? Yeah, you know, like you know what I mean. <laughs> exactly. so, 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 in other words, if I'm going to use, if I'm going to use the grasslands, let's get animals that can give us good food. If we're going to use water and 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 uh, you know the pastures, let let's I mean the, the farmland, let's grow healthy food. I you know it's all about quality and you got to want to dance, you got to pay the band. You know what I mean you have to you have to use some resources up, but we kind of want to be wise about it. So, I you know, this is really really uh, an interesting conversation. I get these questions all the time and people just pinpoint foods that this is bad and this what makes a sustainable diet, but I think we have to come into uh, play other than just greenhouse gases, cultural issues. Uh, you know, uh, you do global food, um, you know, systems. So culturally, some food, some countries don't eat certain foods, right? Right. I mean, you have to be sensitive to that. There's there's the issue of what's the preference, what has been a part of people's culture for hundreds of years. I mean, what is their livelihood? Many, many populations depend on livestock for their livelihood. And in fact, that's one of the one of the key areas for women to have control over resources in a lot of low and middle income countries. So it's a women's rights issue. Like you take away all the livestock, you're actually going to have some really big harms on, on, on women in many of these contexts. So you're absolutely right. Right. So you got to dig deep more than just, uh, you know, looking at greenhouse gases. You got to look like, you know, if you, if you remove something from the table here, what are the domino ramifications that's going to happen, not just in the United States, but globally? It's, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And gosh, knows we just like took the, you know, cherry off the pie here. We didn't even go deep, deep into the crust here. But, but I think, I think it's what I wanted to talk about and talk about this is that it is a big, issue. It's bigger than just measuring greenhouse gases. And that it's all about this whole f- making sure there's enough food for everybody, making sure that everybody has access to healthy foods, they can afford it, it's culturally appropriate, it's it's a healthy diet, and, and you know, it's good for Mother Earth. And by the way, if you want to be good for Mother Earth, you know, shut off the lights when you're not at home and uh, stop taking the car to uh, go someplace when you can walk. I mean, we all got to look at this big picture thing. thing so. Exactly. 
Right. So, so Doc, Dr. Ty, what do you, what do you, what do you, come on, look in your crystal ball, because you're, this is your world. What do you think is going to be happening, you know, with this whole, you know, biodiversity and this whole, where are we going with all this? I hope you have the answers. I would like to see the um, incentives shift to really reward farmers, ranchers who are doing things that are better for the environment, that are having either minimal impact or actually helping to regenerate land and ecosystem. So if we can have incentives, maybe we need certification programs. I would love for it to be on the, on the, in the industry side. I think consumers have a role to play and we should, when we can afford it, we should try to vote with our dollar. But ultimately I would like to see in the future, every food that you go to purchase at the store has already been produced in a sustainable way. So that's not left to the consumer. Well, what food should I be getting? And well, you know, can I get this? Can I not get that? I think that ultimately we want the foods available in the market to be produced sustainably. So whatever type of policies we can get to do that, I think the better. And consumers have a role to play again where where you where you are able to access from farmers or producers that you know produce in a certain way. You can read about them, you can look them up, you can talk with them if you go to the farmers market. So I think there there is a way for that to Sort of a bottom-up and a top-down approach, but can we really make it so that all foods are produced sustainably? That's that's what I'd like to see. That that is great. So, in other words, let's figure out. And I, I'm reading that more food companies are doing this. They're looking at uh, uh, making producing their foods in a more sustainable way. So it's not just the farmers that are growing it, but even when they get the crops, they are producing a sustainable way. So I like this. I like that if everybody could focus on this and wherever you grow it is sustainable, if you take it and you produce it to some other kind of food, you make it into, say, cereal, you, that's in a sustainable way. Um, I like that. And I, I, that, you know, I think down the road, I, you know, I was reading the, could there be a stamp that's on it? This was, you know, approved that it was sustainable or whatever. And that would help the consumer. And as you just said, you could talk with your food dollar and say, I'm going to buy that applesauce versus that applesauce because it has that seal of approval in there. That's exciting. Yeah. That's really, and that's, you know, that's being done and it's being done around the world. And in the U S you have sustainable certifications for seafood that you know you can get whole foods you have you have uh animal welfare ratings right so you can kind of decide which what what type of um, produce you want to support i think it needs to happen at a much more um systemic scale to where all of the foods you know i would love to be able to have the choice to consume all products to be able to say, okay, well, here, this has been, you know, certified that it's it's sustainable in one way or another. Right. There's your key word, choice. And I agree. Let's let's be transparent and have a choice and then let the consumer decide once they're well-educated and understand it all. Look, we're hoping that you get better at it from this episode. So with that, Dr. Ty Beal, I want to thank you for coming on Spot On. This has been actually fascinating. And I have a funny feeling you're coming back because we're not finished with this topic. So um, I'm going to snag you for another time. That's okay with you. Sounds great. Okay. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Joan. It's been a great discussion. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. 
Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?